Good morning, church. I'll bring you some good news. You're about to hear the best sermon you've heard this year. And I'm preaching it on this Sunday for a special reason that we will unveil in a moment. But first, I've just got to get something off my chest. I am fed up with football. I am fed up with football. For several reasons, I don't understand the college game anymore. I really mean it. I just, I'm tired of every year being told who the champion is when I can't understand the reasoning why they're a champion. And the fact is, I don't have a dog in the fight because my parents went to Baylor. And so my team will never get to play for the national championship, but I just can't figure out who gets to, and I don't care anymore. And then there's pro football. I grew up in a home where you believed in going to church, reading the Bible, and rooting for the Cowboys, and we tried to keep it in that order. But last Sunday was the most gutless performance of the Cowboys I have ever seen, and I'm fed up. I am just fed up. You can go mortgage your life savings to buy tickets for Jerry World, but I'm not going to do it. And then I got to tell you, because a lot of you did not know this about me, I am a fantasy football genius. And every year through shrewd trading and tremendous drafting, I put together a monster team. And this year my team was doing great. Second in the league in points scored. I made the playoffs. And the opening round of the playoffs, my team totally failed to show up. And I lost to Mike Washburn. (laughs) Which goes to show that brains has nothing to do with fantasy football. And so I made a list of reasons why I am not going to go to any more football games. Now, you listen and see if these are legitimate. For number one, every time I go, they ask me for money. And the last time I went to a football game, the person sitting next to me never spoke to me the whole time. And the seats are hard and they're not comfortable and sometimes it's too hot. And... I have been to lots of games, and the coach has never once come by my house to visit me. The referees sometimes make decisions I don't agree with, and this really bugs me. At halftime, the band plays songs I don't know, and it's not my personal favorite music style. Seems the games are always scheduled when i got other things to do, and I hate this. I sit by hypocrites who aren't there to watch the game but to talk and visit with their friends. And besides that, I was taken to too many games as a child by my parents. And I hate the traffic jam getting to the game and back. Now, you know what I'm doing, don't you? Everything I just shared was a reason I've heard for people telling me why they don't come to church. Now, at Richland Hills, we have a mission statement, and it goes like this. We are trying to grow followers of Jesus through worship, community, and service. And so the first three weekends of the year, I want to take each one of those components and express why I think they're so important. And so what I want to do today is talk about why we believe the regular, consistent practice of worship is important if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus. I came across a book recently called I Sold My Soul on eBay. And it was written by a man named Hemant Mehta. Now, he did what a lot of people have done. He visited churches all across America to write a book about his reflections. He went to churches of all kinds of denominations. He went to little churches, medium-sized churches, mega churches. The difference is that Hemant Mehta is an atheist. 
Now, his book actually is very fair. He brings up the positive things that he saw and the negative things that he saw. And he writes with a friendly point of view. He's not trying to be ugly or obnoxious. But he did notice one thing in every church, no matter the denomination, no matter the size, that perplexed him. And it was this. Why can't Christians seem to get to church on time? If, if there is a God and he wants to meet with you, wouldn't you think being on time would be important? And he writes this observation in his book. Speaking to those who walk into church late, I want to know why they do so. Not everyone gets stuck in traffic. If church is so important, there's no reason to walk in late. In fact, if going somewhere to worship God is important then people should arrive early. It seems completely disrespectful to me when people walk in the auditorium five or ten minutes into the service. And what's worse is when parents come in with their children who learn by example that walking in late is not a big deal. It's just church, right? No need to get there on time. Is that what Christians want to teach their children? Okay, I think he's a little too harsh. I think there are some good reasons why we're late to church sometimes. I know what the traffic can be like on 820. I understand what it's like to get a last-minute phone call that's urgent or to have a child have an accident just as you're trying to get to church. And I know that some people that walk into our service late are late because they're doing ministry. They're out there greeting people. They're helping people get out of their cars. A lot of times I'm late to the second service because I'm seeing someone I haven't seen in eight weeks out in the atrium. They're connecting to the preacher and talking about something important. And that's legitimate. So I'm not here to bash on people. But let me ask you a question. You never could get to 8 o'clock service on time because it was just too early. So now it's at 9 o'clock and you're still consistently late. It's not really the time, is it? And I think it's a fair question of an atheist to ask us. If meeting with God is so important, why don't you people act more passionate about it than you do? You get to your football games and to your rock concerts with more devotion than you get to worship. And so I want to ask you to think about this. Last year, 2008... If a visitor, if an unbeliever had regularly sat right behind you at church, would they think watching you that you think worship is important? Why should they? Well, that's what I want to explore with you. Why is worship part of our strategy for growing followers of Jesus? Three uh, truths I'm going to share this morning. Here's the first, that we believe worship is critical to a disciple's growth. See, we begin with the affirmation that God does not need our worship. Now, he deserves it, but he doesn't need it. God is sufficient in himself, and we're not filling in something that's lacking on God's part, and that's why he tells us to worship. We need to worship God because worship is formative. You see, every culture 
centers itself around something that is transforming. Now, this is a principle all through your Bible. It's why in the Old Testament it says they followed worthless idols and became worthless. Or they chased after false gods and became false. You take on the values and the virtues of whatever you seek first in your life. You become like what you seek. And this is why the Bible treats worship as one of the oughts of life. It is an act of obedience on our part. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were commanded several times a year to get together in gatherings like this and publicly worship God to center their hearts and minds. You read in Psalm 122, for example, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And all the people of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord as the law requires. See, there is nothing in Scripture about deciding to worship God when you feel like it. The reality is that consistent worship isn't dependent on feelings. It is dependent on a surrendered will. In fact, the reality is that worship develops feelings for God. We've all had those memories of times when we didn't feel like going to church. But we went anyway and we're glad we did because something happened in the process of worship that moved our heart closer to God. And so it is not true that worship won't do you any good unless you feel like it. You say, well, I don't feel like going to church today. Well, get up and go anyway. It will do you some good. Now, you've got to understand, if that wasn't true, Satan wouldn't work so hard to come up with reasons to keep you away. Now, God is worthy of worship, whether you give it to him or not. And he doesn't command worship because he's on an ego trip, but because he knows that you need it to keep your heart and your mind centered On what should be first. And you know who else knows this? Is our adversary. See everything I've said to this point you've heard before. But for the next ten minutes. Let me share with you some thinking you've probably not thought about. I'm going to suggest this morning. That worship is central to the enemy's agenda. That Satan wants your worship. He said to Jesus out in the wilderness, I will give you every kingdom on earth if you will just worship me. I believe it was the very reason he was banished from heaven. I want to read a couple of Old Testament texts today. Now, they're both written to kings, to pagan kings, but they're also addressing the spirit that is behind the king that I think will be very clear. The first is in Isaiah chapter 14, to the king of Babylon, and it reads, All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is an Old Testament euphemism for angels. I will raise my throne above the rest of the angels. I'll sit enthroned in the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Now again, the prophecy is aimed at the king of Babylon. But most students of scripture recognize that Isaiah is addressing the spirit that's behind the man. Did you notice there are five I will statements. And every one of them has an ascending dimension. I will exalt myself. I will promote myself. I will ascend. I will raise myself above my current position. Think about this. If the word sin was taken out of our vocabulary, how would we describe the concept? I would suggest you would describe sin this way. It is when man tries to exalt himself in any way to a place only God deserves. Now, did you notice also that Isaiah says, I'm going to shut up the noise of your harps. Now, what I'm going to share with you is just my speculation. But I think there's some legitimacy to it. You've heard me say before that in the angelic realm, there are three chief uh, duties, warfare, witness, and worship. Did you know there are only three angels mentioned by name in the Bible? One is Michael. Michael seems to be the angel in charge of the warring dimension, because that's what he does when he shows up. In the book of Daniel, he shows up Uh, battling the prince of Persia so Daniel's prayers could get answered. He shows up contending for the body of Moses in Jude. He shows up in Revelation fighting the great dragon, which is Satan. When Michael shows up, there's a battle going on. Another angel named is Gabriel. Gabriel seems to be in charge of the witnessing dimension. He shows up in the book of Daniel to give insight or to give a dream interpretation. He shows up in the Gospels to announce the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus himself. Gabriel brings messages from the Lord. The third angel mentioned in the Bible, your Bible said, O morning star, the older translations say, O Lucifer. Could it be that Lucifer was in charge of worship in heaven? That he was designed To bring glory to God. And his sin was determining to seek his own. Adam and Eve weren't the first sinners. Lucifer and his angels were. In Ezekiel, we have another reference to this great sin. In chapter 28. Now here he's addressing the king of Tyre. But very quickly you realize he's talking about more than a man. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. He's not talking about a man. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Question, why do you need to wear stones? Because your job is to reflect something. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian 
cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and your sins. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By the way, earlier... Speaking also to the king of Tyre, that same man, Ezekiel says, chapter 26, I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. We know in Revelation 12 and verse 4 that Satan and one third of the angelic host were cast out of heaven, not because God was afraid of a coup. Not because God was fearful he could be overthrown, but because his justice demanded it. Because you cannot remain in the presence of God if you are intent on seeking the glory that belongs only to him. But Satan's banishment didn't quench his lust for worship. It only intensified it. He was hurled down to the earth. You read in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil of Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And what has he been doing? Well, just like he did in Tyre and just like he did in Babylon, he has been setting up emissaries to accomplish his agenda. This is spoken of in Revelation 13 in two verses. And I want you to notice very clearly what Satan's agenda is. Men worshipped the dragon. Because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast. And they asked, who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? And all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose name have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, Satan was not successful in stealing the place of God. But he has been very purposeful in stealing and in detouring the worship that should rightfully go to God. Some of his attempts to do so are brazen and shocking. I can drive you five minutes from this building to uh, record and CD stores where on the copy of the CD are the words dedicated to the worship of Satan. I can take you to websites where teenagers are encouraged and shown how to blaspheme the Holy Spirit so they can go ahead and consign their souls to hell now and get it out of the way. But I think most of Satan's attempt to still worship aren't that brazen. I think most of the time they're much more subtle. He sets up a beast. And he gets men and women to so direct their energy and their passion and their, frankly, 
their soul to its pursuit. That they get subtly changed and transformed by something besides God. And that's what makes what we do right here, right now, every week, so important. When we gather to passionately worship God, we are joining with Michael in making war against the enemy. What we are doing now is spiritual warfare. And I so agree with the brilliant comment of the great Christian writer A.W. Tozer who said, to genuinely worship Jesus as Lord of all is immediately to challenge all false gods and to pose a threat to their dark and dingy domains. But I would also contend that when we regularly and passionately worship God, we don't just join with Michael. We join with Gabriel. And let me close with the thought that worship is crucial to our church's witness. And if it wasn't, If what we're doing now isn't that important, then tell me why Satan in every country where he can is trying to outlaw worship gatherings. Because in worship, just as we have already done this morning, we proclaim the foundational realities of life and faith. We proclaim that God is our creator, that everything that is made is made because he breathed it into existence. We proclaim he's sustainer and he's the one holding it all together. We proclaim that he is the redeemer and that there is hope for life after this life because Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. These are the things we preach. These are the things we sing. These are the things we pray. And when we do this, we put God in the rightful place and we cannot help in doing so but remind ourselves of where we belong. And this is why I so disagree with the prevalent theory of many churches that we need to tone down worship because it might confuse lost people. And let's not be very churchy. I completely disagree. We need to ramp up worship. It is the best thing we can do for lost people. Now, our worship needs to be uh, culturally relevant. They need to understand the words we're saying. But they need to know exactly when they gather with us. We're going to sing about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about atonement and about blood and about sin. And we're going to, we are going to praise and proclaim and give witness to the things that we think life should be centered on. And you ought to be clapping right now. I want the unbeliever... Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, to come into this place and fall on his knees and say, surely God is among this people. This is our duty. This is our destiny. Jesus said to the woman at the well that God seeks worshipers. You know why? He's got a big praise team to replace. 
And I intend to spend my time on earth growing through worship. Let me show you a picture as I close. I started with football talk, so I'll close with it. We all recognize Texas Stadium for 38 years, a symbol of this area. It's about to be torn down. And for some of us, it has a lot of memories. I was at the very first football game in that stadium. I was there the day Clint Longley threw a touchdown pass on Thanksgiving to beat the Redskins, jumping up and down in my seats yelling, I go to ACU, I go to ACU. (laughs) I was there when Troy Aikman and the Cowboys beat the Eagles in the booth with Madden and Summerall on their first trip back to the Super Bowl. I've got some great memories of that place. But it's not my favorite memory. My favorite memory of that place has nothing to do with football. Look at the next picture. I was one of over 65,000 men, some of you were there too, over 10 years ago, that filled that place with praise. And if you had stood up in that platform that day and said, Name the name of the sign of the place where you worshipped. All you would have heard was a jumble of noise. But if you had asked us that day, name the only name that can save on whom your hearts and minds are set, you'd have heard one thing. Jesus! And what I will never forget, as being one of 65,000 men with arms raised, holding hands, singing as loud as we could sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Don't tell me men can't worship. And in that moment, and in many moments since, right here in this room, I have remembered who God was. And I have remembered who I am. And it was good. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like to ask the praise team to come up on the stage. The only way to respond to this teaching is to have a brief season of worship. And while we sing this praise together, I would invite you to the ultimate act of worship. If you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ, confessed Him as Lord and Savior, why don't you walk down this morning and let's make plans right now to do that as we praise the Lord as we do what we are destined for.